Welcome back to a brand new series of Mud Between Your Toes. In this series, I'm going to let my guests do the talking. And let me tell you, I have a fabulous lineup of people, many with strong links to Zimbabwe and others less so, but all with a great story to tell. So sit back and enjoy the new Conversations with Pete Wood. Hello and welcome back to Conversations with Pete Wood. Today I'm speaking to a lady who arguably has been more instrumental in the rehabilitation of orphaned African wild animals than any other person in Zimbabwe. Roxy Dankwurz is the founder of Wilder's Life Trust and Zen, the Zimbabwe Elephant Nursery. Roxy's been helping sick and orphaned animals for over 20 years. She's rescued and rehabilitated a whole menagerie of animals from African cats to primates, pangolins, birds, and of course, elephants. Roxy Dankwurz, welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood. Hello, Pete, nice to see you. And uh, thanks for having me on your, on your podcast. Oh, it's brilliant that you managed to join me. Roxy, you've been working with orphaned animals for over 20 years. How did you get into this? And perhaps tell us a bit about your childhood. By all accounts, your mum and dad put animals before the kids, didn't they? Well, my mother certainly did. Mum was definitely a, a very much an animal person. She and the, and the family were involved with horses and cattle and sheep and we lived on a farm we grew up on a farm and um i was pretty much an only child for the first 10 years of my of my life until my brother came along and so yeah i spent a lot of time with animals and just you know had a, a deep sense of connection with them and loved them i mean i wasn't a very good horse rider or anything but i just loved them you know i loved to touch them and talk to them and and yeah, they were they were my buddies for 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 a very long time. This was in Zimbabwe, um, yeah. This was all yeah. So I grew up in Zim, um, in sort of North Harare, in in a in in the rural area, and um, yeah, that's that that's where it sort of comes from. And I think the other thing was that um, it was during the you know war years really here, and uh, you know I I found those those years to be incredibly stressful as a as a young child and there was a lot of fear and and um, anxiety around the liberation struggle as we call it now and um what i've thought back on is that those those fears of of you know being potentially attacked or being at risk and um, not sleeping at night because you're worried that someone would come and attack the house or whatever um, and then also having, you know, as I grew up, friends losing family, losing brothers and fathers and uncles. And, you know, um, it gave me a sort of sense of, of empathy now with animals, particularly elephants, who, who are, you know, at war with humanity, you know, in many different ways. They're at war with humanity in terms of poaching for their ivory, in terms of habitat. Um, in terms of crop, you know, human wildlife conflict, there's just a lot of conflict around that particular species, which, you know, I find myself feeling a lot of empathy for. And it's probably why I like to deal with the baby elephants in particular and try and resolve a lot of their problems. Um, and yeah, so that's a, a lot of that is where that's come from, funny enough. 
So you began Wilder's Life first and then Zen followed later? So yes, I started um, Wilder's Life um, early on in my, my marriage and um, just um, rescuing small animals like mongoose and, and dikers and bush babies and things like that. And then um, when the major trouble started in the country, I then um, was asked to rescue bigger animals like kudus and giraffe and, and, other, and other animals. And um, so it sort of grew organically really. I didn't intend to have a wildlife sanctuary and um to begin with it was just me doing it and and then it just grew and then i you know some lions came along and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and then i just couldn't really cope anymore so because it was just getting too expensive and my poor husband um was feeding a lot of you know extra children the long-suffering so, husband Yes, very long suffering. And that poor long suffering husband had a lot of animals in his bed, I might tell you. <laughs> um, you know, lions and cheetahs and even antelope and um, a vicious mongoose. And yeah, he like, oh my gosh, it was all a bit much. Anyway, he's very long suffering and he's still with me and he's very supportive and I'm very lucky. Okay, so, so uh, let's get to Zen Project later. But first, Wilder's life um, takes an orphaned wild animals from all over the country. Uh, each animal species requires a different method of upbringing. How do you cope with that? Did you get any specialist training? Pete, I didn't do any specialist training. I mean, I've done a few courses and things, just short courses, but a lot of what I've had to do, I've had to teach myself, basically. Um, and, you know, a lot of trial and error and having good relationships with um, vets and doing a lot of reading and, you know, a lot of it is instinctual, but then, you know, different animals, as you say, need different things. So, uh, you know, the milk formulas are all different. The feeding regimens are all different. And so, yeah, I sort of had to extrapolate from my, uh, you know, husbandry skills from, from domestic animals across to wildlife. But of course, wildlife actually is very different. You know, they don't show illness like a domestic animal will. So you've got to be really in tune with, you know, how they're behaving and what their body language is like. And um, yeah, so it's it's not easy. And and also during, during the early um, 2000 period, um, you know, a lot of people left the country and there weren't any vets, so I had to do it myself. So basically, I've, I've taught myself, really. And I think that's been really a blessing because you can get very caught up in science when you're dealing with animals. And I believe that to be a mistake. When you're doing rehab, you've got to use your spirit and your soul and your intuition and um, and also look very strongly at the psychological side of, of any animal, whether it be an elephant or a mongoose or a, a bush baby. And um, you've got to deal with that side of it as well as the, you know, the vet, vet, veterinary side. So okay. it's complicated, but, but now it's, you know, it's sort of second nature, really. So Roxy, you mentioned earlier of it, about um, the colostrum, because obviously young babies require that essential, essential colostrum in or, from their mother's milk in order to get antibodies. I mean, 
honestly, how do you get hold of those sort of products? I mean, you know, for a for some of the more exotic animals. Yeah, Pete, that's a huge problem. I mean, particularly with elephants, I've had a couple of babies here that really I know have not had colostrum. And uh, their immune systems are certainly compromised and there isn't a substitute. For, for, for an antelope, I'll often use, um, I'll store colostrum from a, from a cow. Um, but from any other animal, you know, I don't have the facilities to, to import it or, and I believe you can get like goat's colostrum and, and some made up things. But I mean, that, that is, yeah, that is actually a huge problem. Um, so if I know that they haven't had colostrum, we'll sometimes do um, a plasma transfer. We've done that a couple of times where we take blood from, um, fresh blood from, a, from a, the same species and we'll spin it down and take the plasma off. And then we'll um, um, IV the plasma into the, into the baby. And I mean, it sounds quite hectic, but then they're getting those antibodies. And it's, it's something that we're working on um, constantly and, and it, 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 it can work. It can be dangerous and risky, but it can work. Um, I mean, but as really you say, going forward, yeah. You, yeah. As you say, you, you can get caught up in the whole science of the thing. Well, you do. And, and, and then you'd start reading and then you start getting panicky and hysterical because, you know, you, you feel you're not doing the right thing. So you can get awfully confused. So I'm, I try not to do that as much as I used to. Um, and rather use my my instincts um, and I'm finding that to be much more useful to be honest um, the science is important but I think uh, using you know one's gut intuition yeah. and whatever and, and and existing knowledge is is probably better interesting question I've never been asked that you, uh, you've you've rescued a lot of pangolins haven't you um, which are the most trafficked are the most trafficked animal in the world. Singapore recently bust a haul of nearly 26 tons of pangolin scales recently. That's 38,000 animals, the biggest ever recorded. I mean, how on earth is the pangolin going to survive this onslaught? Yeah, you know, on the same subject of the pangolin, Robert Mugabe, I mean, probably one of the best things he ever did um, was to protect the pangolin way back then. And since his death, I suppose, you know, you could, you know, it's all gone crazy. You know, pangolins in Zimbabwe are, are not as, you know, widely spread or, or there aren't as many as there are in, in, in Asia, that number one. So, um, that's a major problem. So, you know, Asia is wiping out its pangolins at an extraordinary rate and it's, it terrifies me. Um, but obviously now they are looking towards, um, you know, Africa to, for, for, for pangolin, for scales and, and for meat and whatever. And uh, I have deep, deep concerns that we will be able to save the pangolin. I mean, there is a lot of awareness now. But what I have noticed was before social media, you know, uh, some sort of, uh, I don't know, 15, 16 years ago, there would be um, maybe five pangolins handed in every year. They were confiscated and 
often they were handed in as um, gifts for the president, which is part of the culture which, you know, was then outlawed. Um, but now, um, because of social media and, 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 and because of, you know, the, the um, what do you call it, the press around pangolins, everybody knows that a pangolin is now worth money. So if somebody were to find a pangolin in the bush, they're going to pick it up and they're going to try and sell it. And pangolins are extraordinarily fine, difficult animals. They only eat ants, particularly the ones we get here, which is the Cape pangolin or the ground pangolin. You can't put them on an artificial diet. Um, they, they get terrible um, glucose um, spikes and, and, and troughs, and they, they're ridiculously difficult. So um, I have some serious concerns about the number of pangolins that are being you know, confiscated. I, I, um, I don't focus particularly on pangolins. We've done quite a few pangolins, but there is another organization in Zim, the Tiki Highwood Trust, who do the most extraordinary work on pangolins. And they, okay, so Zimbabwe is way ahead of the game in terms of pangolin protection in that if you're caught with a pangolin, you get a mandatory jail sentence of nine years. And I don't think there's anywhere else in the world that has that sentence. Um, and a lot of work was put into that by the Tiki Highwood Trust to um, ensure that that was put in place to protect our pangolins. Um, but I, I have some very, very serious concerns that the pangolin will mm. remain on this planet. I really do. They so are very difficult. Pangolins warthogs, uh, lions, are there any elephants? I mean, where do you, do you keep them all on your, your property outside of Harare? So we live um, on a farm just outside Harare. We're about, um, yeah, from the center of Harare, which is really lucky. Um, and the animals are all here. They're all around the house and around the, in the garden and all over the place. So just expanding all the time. Oh, look, there's a fantastic picture of you lying on an utterly, totally destroyed sofa with a grown warthog, obviously a family member. I expect over the years there have been some real characters which, uh, you know, uh, I mean, which ones were real handfuls? Which ones did you all thought you fell in love with? There's also another brilliant, brilliant, brilliant picture of you lying on the same sofa, I think, with a baby elephant literally cuddling up to you. Yeah, <laughs> I have been rather inclined to um, have these animals around the house, which rightly or wrongly, um, the point is that they they need you know a lot of attention and care and yeah they destroy my house and and they you know steal everything out the kitchen and they make a mess but you know so long as they're happy animals and they do eventually they've got such wild instincts they do eventually head off out into where they need to be and um yeah, it's pretty chaotic, actually. It can be very chaotic. I try not to, the, the, the elephants don't come in the house at all anymore. I made that mistake once, <laughs> um, and it wasn't the right thing to do. So I, um, we don't have that anymore, and yeah. I've read a lot on social media recently about bottles for Boomy and Buddies. Can you tell us about that? Who is Boomy? 
So Bumi is a young elephant that we rescued um, in October last year during the drought. And uh, uh, he was he was a newborn and he got stuck in a in a riverbed and was rescued by um, some guys from the local rural council and taken to um, Bumi Hills um, anti-poaching unit who then looked after him. And then we sent up a plane to collect him. Um, and when he got back, he found that he'd been terribly badly sunburned. And um, sunburn's a big problem for baby elephants. You know, when they're with their mum, they they generally, you know, shaded all the time. Was this little Ellie been left in the boiling hot sun, dry, dehydrated, nearly, you know, really new gone. Anyway, we um, we nursed him back to health, and he's a He's a fabulous little elephant, and he's got a little friend called Kadiki, who's even younger than he is. Um, and she'd been very badly mauled by lions, and but she was she's a tiny elephant. She um, she only weighed sixty six kilos when she came, and five kilos. And um, so those two are best friends, and but they're just two of nine elephants. Um, here at the sanctuary that we've got on bottles. So at the moment, with no, we, you know, we can't have guests which help pay for our costs. Um, and you know, drink, uh, as you can imagine, an enormous amount of formula. So um, that's what we've been trying to do is just try and raise a bit of extra money to, to keep these Ellie's feeding because we can't stop because of the COVID crisis. We've got to carry on. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, so while we're on elephants, so tell us more about Zen, the Zimbabwe Elephant Nursery. So you started in 2012. Um, you have a nursery in Harare and then a rewilding facility in Victoria Falls. How many acres do you need for a project like this? <laughs> no worries. So we've got the nursery here in Harare for the small elephants. Um, and we have 13... Uh, 13 animals here um, and they go out and they feed on the next door farm every day um, and that's about 2,000 acres and then um, the rewilding facility which is really important for any elephant project is up near near Victoria Falls and that we've leased a large property from the Forestry Commission of Zimbabwe and um, that is uh, 34,000 hectares of, of land, which we are, you know, we, we think it's really important to, to protect the landscape as well as the elephants. So while protecting the landscape, we're providing um, freedom for, for, for the elephants that we're rehabilitating. So, I mean, honestly, what are the logistics of getting elephants across country from, say, the Zambezi or Gonorizo to Harare? Uh, you know, an elephant is not a small animal, as everyone knows. I mean, how do you fly the animals? I've heard of a, a team in Zimbabwe called Flying for Wildlife. Do you use them? I don't, actually. I use, um, I use a, another airline uh, charter company. Um, who I've been using for the last five years, and they're just brilliant because I phone them up, they take the seats out the plane. I use um, an airline, uh, an airline charter company, and phone them up and either order um, Navajo or a caravan so that I can fit my team on as well as the elephant. Um, and we take the we take all the seats out, so everyone's sitting on the floor. 
Um, and if, if the calf is too big, then we have to send the Navajo, the bigger airplane, the caravan at least, because otherwise the door's too small, we can't fit the elephant through the door. Um, normally the, the calf is sedated, but often if it's a small calf, we don't sit and they just stand up, hang out and look out the window. How amazing. It's a pretty ridiculous situation. But <laughs> how absolutely, how absolutely incredible. Um, so once a, a, a calf, an, a, a baby elephant uh, is healed, grown up, uh, and you, it's ready for rewilding, you drive it back up country. Um, how do you introduce it to wild herds? How does it actually work? Yes, so we, we, when I think they're ready, which is around three, three to four years old, we put them on a truck and we drive them um, 1,100 kilometers up to the rewilding site. And there we have bomas um, where the, ele the elephants live, with, also with handlers that they know. Um, and then we have these interaction zones where the wild elephants will come and um, mainly the bulls, and they come and they talk to the ellies through the fence so we know it's safe. And then what's happening now is that um, the Ellies, because they've got to know our, our re re rehabilitating Ellies, um, they meet them at the pond down below the camp or they meet them while they, they're in the bush. Often some bulls will come or even a breeding herd. And yeah, they, 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 they're pretty relaxed and they all have a chat and there's lots of rumbling and trumpeting and sniffing and smelling. And, and then, uh, so we've got two two elephants actually left us and joined a big breeding herd. One has stayed with that breeding herd. Another one came back six months later. And then we've got another young bull who keeps going off for a couple of days. It's just wonderful, actually. And he goes off with the big bulls and they're huge, these bulls. They're enormous. And he goes off with them, chills, has a bit of a party. And then he comes back and joins the herd again, tells some stories and yeah, we never really know when he's going to go, but he's free to go and, and come as he as he likes. Um, the only problem up there is that it's quite risky for, for our handlers. You know, the handlers are on foot. We do have an armed ranger with them, but there's, there's a lot of lions there. There's buffalo, there's wild elephants. And, you know, we have to be terribly cautious and, and, and have a lot of concern for our the safety of our, our handlers and our rangers. So when they do join a herd, um, we get the, our, our team to stand back and stay right back and not try and follow them um, and leave them to do their own thing and make their own choices. It's just safer that way. And it works. I mean, clearly you've had many successes, but have there been any real heartaches? Um, up in, in the release site, no, not, not yet, and I, I hope we won't. Um, but obviously at the nursery, we've had some really terrible heartaches um, of losing babies and, and uh, yeah, trying to cope with that. And yeah, Pete, that's a, that's a really tough one, you know. I, 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 this is not just like a care worker or a nurse or a vet or an owner, you know, I do with my team, I do a bit of everything. So we're with the animals 24 hours a day. And even if we've had the animal for a few days, you know, I go and, I go and sleep at the nursery and, you know, we, we're on it. And when we lose one, 
um, you know, I have to be the strong one and, you know, guide the team and whatever. And, you know, my, my handlers take it very badly. They, you know, you've got grown men who are weeping over the loss of an animal. And I find that really tough because I can't, I have to clean up and, and show strength. And, and then I, I have to go back and deal with my own grief. And Absolutely. I mean, how, yeah, can, Roxy, how, really how can people help? How can they, how can they donate a bottle of milk? How much, you know, how, how can people around the world do this? Because I can, I can imagine, you know, just uh, if everyone bought a bottle of milk, that would make a huge difference, wouldn't it? Well, it does because, you know, there is the stress of, of just keeping the whole thing going. And um, we, we, we've got a GoFundMe um, uh, platform going at the moment. Um, otherwise, our website's got a really good direct link for for donations, and and it's really easy. You know, you can donate five dollars or ten dollars or whatever you feel like donating. And um, yeah, I mean, there's no administration costs because the 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 fund is is run by a friend of ours in the in the US, and and so all the money comes directly to us and just goes directly into the animals. So that, it does take a lot of pressure off us if we can get donations in. God, you're an absolute saint. So just to um, tell my listeners, uh, they can go to ZimbabweElephantNursery.com um, yes. to find out all of that information. However, there's a BBC series, a fabulous TV series that the BBC did on you. And this can be found as well if anyone's interested, and I highly recommend it. Go to www.bbc.co.uk and just type in Roxy Dankwords and you will see the full series. It's so much fun. It's definitely worth watching. Yeah, we did that series five years ago and it was, it was a lot of fun. I mean, um, yeah, some of it was probably you know, a bit too domestic, but um, it was, it, it is what it is. And, you know, Moyo, the elephant in that, in that movie is just such a special elephant. And she, she now is sort of my nursery manager, that elephant. Um, that, she's, that, she, that's the elephant that is on the sofa with you, is it? Exactly. And she now is the one who, who welcomes all the babies and she, I can't, I actually can't do this job without her. She, she, we, the babies will come in and they're absolutely traumatized and terrified and she will rumble at them and she puts her trunk around them and she sniffs them and then she looks after them. She's unbelievable, that elephant. And she's like my best friend, really. Oh, fantastic. Listen, Roxy, yeah. we're running out of time. It's oh. been absolutely fantastic listening to you. I honestly can't tell you how inspired and awestruck I am by the work you and your team do. I wish you all the very best, particularly in these troubled COVID-19 times. It will end eventually, but it's going to take a long time for um, shipments and things to get to Zimbabwe. Uh, but really, thank you so much for joining me on Conversations with Pete Wood. Pete, thank you so much and really, really cool to meet you. And thanks for all the support. It's so appreciated. It really is. Fantastic. Take care. Bye. Bye. That's the extraordinary Roxy Dankworth. I don't know how she does it. Actually, I don't know how her husband does it as well. They both deserve sainthoods. Join me next time for Conversations with Pete Wood. 
and I have a lovely lineup of people waiting for you. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me, and remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for Mud Between Your Toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye.